Well, today we finish off the book of 2 Timothy, the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his young son in the faith, young pastor Timothy. And I invite you to turn there with me now. And we are in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 9 to 22. As you turn there, I'll give you some background. This was the Apostle Paul, a man who ministered to the church. It was his last letter. It was his last letter before his execution around, you know, the late 60s AD. And in this letter, we have Paul's final encouragements to Timothy, pastor of the church in the city of Ephesus or modern day Turkey. And Paul encourages him to fulfill your ministry, preach the gospel, shepherd the church. And this letter here, you know, once again, reflects so much of the very heart of Paul and his commitment to this Jesus. I mean, here he is persecuted. If you read the letter in the afternoon, read the whole thing, you'll see that he is persecuted, that he is jailed for the gospel. He is, in fact, on trial for his faith in Jesus Christ. And here he is encouraging others to continue, fulfill your ministry. Persevere in your faith in Jesus Christ for the fame of his great name. Such an encouraging letter. I definitely encourage you guys to, to read this in the afternoon, the whole thing straight through. Um, and if you're, if you're exploring Christianity, remember, right, this is a real letter written by a real man to real people. And from these letters, you and us all, we can learn so much about the substance of Christianity and, most importantly, Christ himself. Who is this Jesus Christ? As Paul suffers, as he faces his death sentence, right? What does this Jesus Christ mean to his people? Who is this Jesus Christ? And then the answer today is that Jesus Christ brings this abiding confidence and comfort to the worst of situations. Jesus Christ brings abiding confidence and comfort to the worst of situations in Jesus Christ. And that's what we see today from our passage. Uh, and no matter what you, friend, are facing, know this main idea right? Here we go. Main idea, if you're taking notes. Abiding confidence and comfort are found in Christ. Abiding confidence and comfort are found in Christ. That's the main idea today. Go ahead and look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 to 22. I'm going to go ahead and read that. We did part one last week. We saw how Paul is undaunted, undeterred for the mission to exalt Jesus Christ. Now we're going to look at it here about how he trusts in, in Christ to actually deliver him. Look there, verse 9. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Anisiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come to me before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. 
The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Main idea again here, abiding confidence and comfort are found in Christ. But of course, this is not to say that such confidence and comfort cannot be found in the blessings that come from Christ. Right? These, there, there are many blessings that come from Christ by which the Christian can derive confidence and comfort to run the Christian race. If you notice in our passage clearly, right, confidence and comfort can be found in Christ's people. This is point number one. Confidence and comfort can still be found in Christ's people. After all, they are Christ's people. If you are a member of First Baptist Church, perhaps you yourself are growing to see this. I certainly pray that we would come to know such blessing in our own fellowship, as I know that some of you are. I've been trading emails with some of you guys, and you are experiencing more and more this confidence and comfort in the midst of suffering. I pray, and I pray that it is your prayer, too, that we are helping each other grow in such confidence to run the Christian race. And we are seeking also to provide comfort, the comfort needed to what Paul tells Timothy, to endure suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ, for the fame of his great name, though it will be difficult at times. It's certainly been my own experience that doing life together with other Christians can be so incredibly uplifting and encouraging. But but don't get me wrong here. If you notice the, the passage here, it's not always easy. Christian, The Christian life in Christian community even is not always easy. We are still sinners and we still wrestle with sin. Sometimes we frankly just stink at providing such confidence and care to our own fellow church members for so many different reasons. Maybe we are still babies, right? We're babies at learning how to really love in a Christ-like way. Maybe we haven't been taught to, to, to how to love other people. Maybe we wrestle with, with the baggage from the past, and maybe we are afraid to commit to other people. Maybe, you know, we are a bit ignorant. Maybe the way that one culture expresses love and care isn't really understood in the same way by a different culture. And then, of course, on top of all those things, most fundamentally, in fact, we are still sinners at the end of the day, which means we're going to sin against each other. It's not always easy. And Paul himself knew this. Paul knew that living in Christian community was not going to be bliss immediately. His Christian friends, be reminded of this, he had deserted him. Nero had snatched up, right? He had snatched up Paul for being a Christian, just as he had done for so many other Christians. And so there was fear in the Christian community. Look there in verse 16. At my first defense, think court case, legal defense. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but look, they all deserted him as in like his trusted confidants. They could have spoken up and right, spoken up and lobbied before the court officials of Nero that, his, that he was innocent, but instead they hid seemingly out of fear. Not only did some of his Christian friends just simply not speak out of fear, one guy named Demas, you look there in verse 10, one guy named Demas, he straight up just ditched him and skipped town. You see there in verse 10, why did he do this? Because he loved the world. Paul knew, right? Paul knew that Christian community was not perfect, but yet he persisted in his faith and in Christian community, not because he worshipped this idea of Christian community, and that was his God commanding him to go and go forth and preach Christian community, but because he worshiped Christ. He persisted for Christ. The fact that no church is perfect here on earth should actually 
inform our own expectations. We'll take some time to apply this right now. Right? So, again, we aren't perfect. But lest we lose all hope, we have to remember that Christians are fundamentally different than the world. Every true born-again Christian has and possesses the spirit of Christ. That is the mind of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, we are to grow in Christ-likeness. We are not free from sin. But praise God, the church is the one who actually knows they are not free from sin. Just think of the world for a moment. Just think of yourself before you became a Christian. The world sins and even encourages sin. They encourage sin. Maybe you encourage sin before you became a Christ. But in the church, right, we sin. In no way are we to encourage this. But instead, when we sin, we're actually commanded to turn from our sin, to find forgiveness, and even to give forgiveness, to grant forgiveness, and to continue persevering, loving our brothers, just as Christ commanded to, just as Christ showed us how to. So while we are not perfect, thank God, right? Thank God that compared to the world, right, what happens in the world, Praise God that true Christian churches are havens, certainly not perfect havens, but havens nevertheless. Nevertheless, we are Christian churches who are to represent a little bit, a little bit, though it might be even a glimmer. We are to represent the comfort that is found in Jesus Christ, the comfort that Christ will one day bring to completion at the end. And that day, then Christian community will be perfect. Praise God for that. That's a marvelous, marvelous thing that we can hope in. And it's actually something that should cause us to labor, to labor towards in knowing forgiveness and even granting forgiveness. Well, not only is Paul alone because some of his confidants had deserted him, he is also alone, as we mentioned last week. If you want to listen to uh, the live stream there, you can go ahead and do that. He is also alone because he himself had dispatched some of his other partners in the gospel. So friends deserted him. The second reason why he's alone is because he himself had dispatched his partners in the gospel. We hear that in verse 12. Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus, you know, to care for the church. Not only that, though, but he sent off Cretans and Titus. And presumably, there, uh, Paul had dispatched them. But, but while he's alone, notice that he seeks a certain, a certain kind of confidence and comfort in Timothy, his fellow brother in Christ, a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. This is why Paul calls on Timothy, his beloved son in the faith, to there in verse 9. Do your best to come to me soon. He's asking here for Timothy's presence and partnership and friendship, right? But let me emphasize this. Paul doesn't just think Timothy should come so that they can hang, so that they would, so that he would solve Paul's like loneliness problem, so that he would achieve this ideal as if his greatest problem is loneliness. Interesting, right? Right? He didn't just call on Timothy to alleviate his loneliness. He called on Timothy because there was still gospel work to be done in the mission to glorify Jesus Christ. That's why when it talks about him being at his first defense, right? No one came there in verse 16. No one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. But then you look there, verse 17. But the Lord stood by me. We're going to look at this later on. The Lord stood by me. So what? So that. So the purpose is so that this ultimate goal would be achieved, that the gospel would be preached. That the gospel would be preached and all the Gentiles might hear it. This was Paul's mission. And Timothy was useful as a brother in Christ, partnered together in that very mission. So, But let me also emphasize this. It's so encouraging when we see this, that Paul and Timothy experienced 
such sweet and meaningful friendship and partnership because they shared the same Savior, because they were in the same family of God. Christ in his spirit is this basis of Christian French fellowship and friendship. These guys, right, they shared the same mind of Christ. This is a major reason, the reason why Paul calls on Timothy. Like attracts like. Here, like calls on like. By way of application, I want a Christian, who is it that you attract? And what and who are you attracted to? Right, Paul, Timothy, they're on this mission. Paul knows, yes, Timothy is brother in Christ, faithful in Christ. I'm a call upon him because, yes, we certainly have friendship in Christ, but there is more to accomplish in Christ. I wonder who you spend time with. You know, as they say, right, you become who you spend time with. Just look at, just look at the five friends who are closest to you. Do you want to spend time around the Christ-like do you want to get the most Christ-like people, the most godly people you can find and say, I want you with me? Because even though you might rebuke me, man, your presence is refining. It is encouraging. It is strengthening. You know, I can guarantee you that if you do not desire to be around the Christ-like, sadly, then the church and even the Lord you might claim to love will eventually become very insignificant to you. And you might even, God forbid, you might even turn out to be one like Demas, who was known to, at that moment at least, not to love Jesus, but to be in love with this present world. Think being back to Paul and Timothy. Because Paul and Timothy's one thing was Jesus Christ, so they shared such deep friendship and partnership and brotherly love for one another and fellowship in Jesus Christ. As like attracted like. There, there was confidence and comfort in running the race together for the Savior in deep, deep brotherly love. All of us should be praying and striving in the Spirit to be, to be like Timothy and Paul, to have such Christian friendships, to support our fellow Christians as we are partnered in the gospel with them. Right? We are members of this same church, First Baptist Church. We are on the same mission, and God in his providence has put us on the same squad, so to speak. So, Christian, let me ask you, do other Christians call on you because they know Christ is your one thing? Such that you have Christ as your Lord, you have his word as your will, and the mission of spreading his name and loving his church and loving all those around you as your mission. Are you known for having other Christians call upon you for partnership in these things. And let me ask you another question. Do you want to be one that church members can go to for confidence and comfort in the faith? I certainly hope so. Christ wants that for you. He wants that for every Christian in his church, given that truth. So let me encourage you to apply yourself to become a more faithful Christian like Timothy. It's actually not that hard for the true Christian certainly requires the spiritual fruit of discipline and things like this. But you you got to remember, right? Jesus Christ has determined that his people would look like him. And so he has given us the means, right? Think about the end, the end of Christ-likeness. God determines the ends, but he also t determines the means, the means by which we are to get there. That's the spiritual disciplines, as some people call them. 
and the power of the Spirit. We just, you Christians, just have to lean into them. To lean into the end of Christ-likeness, we must also lean into the means of knowing how to grow in Christ. How do we grow up in the mind and in the heart of Jesus Christ? Well, to start, let me encourage you to read the word of God. God has revealed himself in his word. It is his self-revelation about who he is and what he has done in Jesus Christ. And if you don't really know where to start when it comes to reading the word, let me just encourage you to, you know, you can read the passage that's going to be preached on next. You can read the passage that's going to be preached on next and right there in the bulletin that you can download. Let me encourage you to read it, to study it, to ask questions of it, to pray through it, and to grab a friend to do the exact same thing. Lean into the means that he has given. And as you do, pray that Christ would transform your heart and your mind by his spirit. And that what you would read would be, would be so captivating as you come to know the Lord more and more. And the more you do, not just read the word, but also love the Lord and his word, I wouldn't be surprised at all that the more God would use you to bring confidence and comfort to your brothers and sisters as they run this race, the race of faith. Okay, this is what Timothy was called on for. This is what Paul relied on Timothy for, to labor together, to know Christ together, and to fulfill their mission of sharing the gospel. But as we already noted, while we pray that Christian friendship and fellowship would be great in the church, right? We know that that's what's going on here. You know, it isn't the foundation. It is not the foundation of Christian confidence and comfort. It is not the foundation for Christian confidence and comfort. That is found in Christ himself. This is point number two. Point number two. It is found in Christ himself. Even though we know that Paul was abandoned and that no one came to stand by me, he said. He still continued in his mission. Right? He has in mind, again, preaching the gospel at his second defense to the highest court in the land, to Nero. He's still planning to do that, as he's, we saw last week, gathering around his gospel ministers so that they could make one more stand, preach the gospel. That's what Christ commanded Paul to do. He was to carry his name, Christ's name to Gentiles and kings, as it says in the book of Acts. Why was he able to do this, right? Persist, even though he was alone, even though he was abandoned, deserted, even though he had dispatched his friends. It's because if you look down at verse 17, it's so clear. The Lord stood by me. In his greatest time of need, the basis of his confidence and comfort was not his friends who deserted him. It was not Timothy who is to come to him, but it was his faithful Lord, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He was the one who showed up and stood by. And what did the Lord do when he stood by? What did the Lord do when he stood by? The Lord, it says, strengthened me. So powerful. Even though his friends did not stand, the Lord stood. And what did he do? He poured his power into him. Here, I don't think this is where, uh, you know, where the Lord turns up like he did with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace in the book of Daniel. I don't think that a figure was next to Paul here. I think the Lord the Lord stood by him in that he strengthened him by his spirit. So you see, that's what God does with his spirit. In the book of Acts, for example, the church is born. Christ goes up into heaven, pours out his spirit, and empowers his disciples to go out and be bold for his namesake. That's what I think is going on here. He poured his power into me. And what happened? He was, at the end of the day, unfazed in his mission, undeterred, undaunted. And with that strength poured in him, what was the result? What was the result? Look at the passage there. The Lord strengthened me so that, here's grand purpose, 
so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Here is amazing, right? He, he, he sees this as uh, very much a fulfillment of the mission. He's preaching the gospel to all of the Gentiles. Of course, all of the Gentiles as represented by their leaders. But he's preaching the gospel, right, to the highest courts of the land. How encouraging. And of course, right, it would be, it would be encouraging that the Lord stood by him. I mean, forget Nero and the courts of Rome when you have the king of the universe on your side. That's the foundation of the Christian's confidence, of Paul's confidence. Yahweh is on his side. Who is there to fear? Isn't this what we see time and time again in the Old Testament? And it's not because those people, right, the people are so awesome. It's because God is so faithful and powerful. Think of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Joseph. They learned, right? They learned in their weakness that the Lord is faithful to his promises. Think of Moses against Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Though Moses cowered in fear in the mission that God gave him to lead his people out of Egypt, who was it that came down, split the Red Sea, causes people to walk on dry land? The Lord, he learned, was sovereign over all, faithful to his promises. Think of King David. God promised, right, that David would be king. Despite being the underdog to Saul, despite Saul attempting to take his life over and over again, and then him experiencing such suffering, the Lord was steadfast in his covenant commitment. And in seeing the Lord's faithfulness and sovereignty and steadfast love towards him who didn't deserve it, he learned and eventually wrote Psalm 18, verse 6. Listen to this. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And then, of course, we have the greatest example of all. We have Jesus Christ, who knew he had to, who knew that he had to, as the Father had commanded him, as he himself to embrace the mission to lay down his own life to be crucified at the hands of sinful men. But in doing so, he knew that in giving up his body over to death, that he would indeed raise it back up again, that God would raise it back up again, as the scriptures had foretold. And what is so interesting, totally not surprising, but what is really interesting in this passage is that Paul has Christ's experience right before his eyes. As Paul was deserted by his friends in his greatest time of need, I think he very much remembered that he was just simply walking in the same footsteps of his Lord and Savior as Jesus Christ was sold out, unjustly accused by authorities. And there on the cross, as he hung for his disciples and his church, he was deserted by them. He was deserted by them and then even disowned by one of them. But it wasn't just the sufferings of Christ that Paul shared. It was also God's grace in having a forgiving spirit, the same spirit of Jesus Christ. Look at what Paul himself prays for those who had deserted him. He prays pleading with God, may it not be charged against them. It's an echo, isn't it? It's an echo of Jesus' prayer. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do do. With Christ the Lord ever before him, and with Christ as sovereign over all, I mean, who wouldn't once again have confidence? And Paul had seen the greatest evidence of God's faithfulness, right? It wasn't, it wasn't here that he's just simply thanking God for the fact that Christ showed up and gave him the strength. Right? It was actually his confidence is based in the greatest evidence of God's faithfulness ever. 
that is in fulfilling all of his promises to save sinners in his grace and mercy through Jesus Christ. This is the gospel that he lived for. He knew with such confidence that the Lord is faithful to his promises and faithful to him who didn't deserve it. This is the gospel that he preached, that God is gracious. And we see his grace played out as man rebelled against God, right? They sinned, they disobeyed, they rejected him. They earned for themselves just condemnation in hell, the Bible says. But God, being a loving, loving father, didn't just simply cast them off immediately, though he, had, he, he could have, but instead he pursued them in love. And he promised that there would come a day where even though the people who rebelled against the one true king would deserve punishment, that he would provide a way out. And this way out, friends, is Jesus Christ, prophesied of in the Old Testament, fulfilled, we see, in the Gospels that record Jesus coming, taking on flesh, walking amongst us, living the perfect life that we should have, and dying the death that we deserved on the cross as a substitution for his people, bearing the wrath and the judgment that we ourselves deserved. He died, taking that punishment and the wrath upon him, so that all who would ever repent of their sins and believe on him, regardless of where they come from, their background, their social status, how much money they have, regardless of their ethnicity and their color, regardless of gender, male or female, all who turn from their sins and believe on him would be saved. And so Paul knows himself to have been in debt, deserving of the wrath of God. And so he experiences this salvation in Jesus Christ. And then Christ calls him to go out and spread this good news that the time is now. God stands with open arms calling all to turn to him and find rest for their souls. Rest from the guilt of sin. Rest from the shame of sin. And most importantly, to know God as father. To be reconciled with him, adopted into his family, where we would know the love of Christ. Right? When Paul says, when Paul banks on the fact that God, when he says, Yeah, God stood by me, he has very much in mind. Yes, literally, the Lord stood with us out of his great love for us. That's why he's so excited to preach the gospel, because he knew that God was faithful and that God was God who delivered in Jesus Christ. Knowing God's faithfulness, right, in the Old Testament. And then we see God fulfill his promises in the New Testament, in Jesus Christ again, who died on the cross, right? Paul was so confident. Paul knew too, right, back in the book of Acts, that it was Christ who poured out his spirit on his people. He was faithful to strengthen them so that they would go on and preach the gospel. And Paul knew then at his first defense that even though nobody stood by me, the Lord was faithful and he strengthened me that he might preach the gospel to the Gentiles. We see what was the result there, though he preached the gospel to those who were persecuting him for that gospel. What happens? It says there, I was rescued or delivered from the mouth of the lion, meaning there the sword. Here too, we see that he is thinking about the same passage that Jesus was as he thinks about Jesus on the cross. Jesus, right? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As God laid the weight of sin and the wrath upon him on the cross. That's Psalm 22, verse 1. Later on in that psalm, right, he says there, or David prays there, that God would rescue him from the lion's mouth. And there's Paul meditating on Psalm 22 and Jesus's final deliverance raised from the grave. And he says, yes, even then I was delivered from the lion's mouth. 
Christian, this, this abiding confidence and comfort that Paul has, you realize that that is for all of us. We see clearly the fulfillment of God's promise once again in Christ. And Christ has promised to deliver us once and for all, and, to, and he promises us to be with us now. This confidence and comfort is, again, for all Christians, whether we are persecuted for Christ, like the guy that I prayed for earlier, the church leader in Laos. This conf- confidence and comfort is also for us in every, the everyday situations of our lives. Paul himself might have faced the greatest king of the earth, but who was with him, right? The king of the universe. Maybe for you, when you as you fear others, when you share the gospel with them, who is it, who is it that strengthens you? Remember God's answer to Moses. Who is the Lord of the tongue? And who will strengthen you and give you the words to speak? It is God. But you can think about other aspects of the Christian life. You might be facing your own sin and your lack of righteousness, maybe even in an overwhelming way. Christian, remember who stands with you. Christ, the righteous one, who is the righteousness you need for salvation. The righteousness that he clothes his people in to save them. Maybe you are maybe you face a broken breaking down marriage or a broken marriage. Remember who stands by you, Christ, your bridegroom, who is the only one, the only one who loves perfectly, and also the only one who can help you love as he loves, even in the face of discouragement. Maybe you face loneliness. Well, friends, remember who stands by you to strengthen you. It is him who knew such loneliness and betrayal and abandonment by others, but who also knew the faithfulness of God. Christian, Christ calls us daily. We have this beautiful invitation right before us. He calls us daily, moment by moment, to see him for who he is, to behold his face in all of his beauties. He is the Lord who stands by his people to strengthen them for the course. And this he does through his spirit. He strengthens the church to live for him, to live for his name, to minister in his name, and to see the church built up. And so we should and we ought to take great confidence in what Christ says in Matthew 28, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And we are to remember, Christian, you are to remember that what he has promised he will fulfill. The preaching of the gospel, the building up of his church, the salvation of his people as he brings us all the way home that he has he has promised and that he will fulfill. This is why Paul had such great comfort. Not only was he, he says, was I rescued then past tense. But look at verse 18. He looks to the future. The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Now, this here is not the the power of positive thinking, as some people teach. Like, you know, you can manifest whatever thoughts you want. He's not, he's not trying to do that. He's not seeking to manifest his deliverance at his next defense as his court case goes on. He's not a name it and claim it teacher. He already knows that he's going to die. That's why he says in 4, 6 to 8, I've already finished the race. I'm going to be poured out like a sacrifice, blood on the ground. He knows these things. 
He's already said that those who desire to live godly lives will be persecuted. So when he says the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, what he's saying there, it means that the Lord would rescue him from anything and everything that could possibly threaten him from finally reaching the heavenly kingdom, including death itself. Every evil deed, he says, every evil deed, every single threat without exception. He knows God says, I got it covered. And so Paul trusts the Lord will rescue me and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Safe passage, direct line to the heavenly kingdom that is in Christ. He even faces his own execution or as many Christians were being fed to lions which they wouldn't have done for Paul because he was a Roman citizen, but yet, but nevertheless, Christians were still facing that. He could even, Christians could even face being burned alive by Nero to be a light bulb for Rome. But he laughs at the days to come. He can laugh at the days to come. He can face death while remembering that Christ will stand by me again. Christ, as it says in 110, who is Jesus Christ? You look there at 110, chapter 1, verse 10. This is Christ who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, through his death on the cross, and then in his resurrection from the grave three days later. He can face no matter the situation, and we too can face no matter the situation with great confidence, knowing that just as we will follow Jesus into the grave, so we will follow Jesus out of it. And our deliverance is heavenward. The foundation of Christian confidence and comfort, no matter the threat, is without doubt the Lord who will bring all of his people, who will bring all of his people safely into his heavenly kingdom. As Paul himself puts it in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Friends, that is lasting comfort. And because we have Christ on our side, or more accurately, because Christ has taken us to be on his side, it means that we can face the most dangerous of situations, the most dangerous of people in this fallen world. And we know that that threat has been vanquished. Listen to the prophet Isaiah God says in Isaiah 14, verse 27, the Lord of hosts has purposed. Who can thwart him? Who can turn back his hand? Forget Nero. Psalm 118, verse 6, because the Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Praise the Lord that he is faithful. Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, the Lord your God is God. The faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Paul knew this truth, and he lived in it every single day. He knew that Christ was king, just as the Lord came in the flesh to die on the cross for sins, just as the Lord had stood by him to strengthen him and the entire church through his spirit, giving us boldness and courage, so he would be faithful to everything else he had promised. He is the Lord in chapter 4, verse 8. He is the Lord, the righteous judge, who will award the crown of righteousness to all who loved his appearing. He is the Lord who looks upon the sufferings of his people by persecutors. And in 4.14, what does he say? The Lord will repay 
or carry out justice against those who persecute his people. He is the Lord who, as our passage says, will bring his people safely home into his heavenly kingdom. And as Paul wanted Timothy to finish his course, Paul reminds him there in verse 22, look there, he is the Lord who will be with your spirit. And the Lord who gives, supplies, provides grace to us in every moment. For Paul and Timothy and for Christ's church, it is all for Christ and his glory. Christ deserves it. They knew it, so they lived for it. They knew it and lived in this truth. He lived in this truth until his very last breath. And look how he closes the body of his letter. So this powerful doxology of praise, right? After he recounts all of the different things that the Lord would do, the Lord has done, it's like his soul erupts into this doxology of praise there at the end of verse 18. To him, this faithful Lord, God who took on flesh, God the Son who took on flesh, died on the cross for, the sin, for our sins, rose from the dead, intercedes for us even right now. God who empowered the church, God who strengthened Paul so that he would preach the gospel, God who would deliver, God who would bring us all safely home into his heavenly kingdom, God who has taken him, us to himself and will not let us go to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. What a fitting conclusion. In all of life, who is worthy? The answer is Christ Jesus, the Lord, to him, right? That's when it says to him be the glory. What is he worthy of? He is worthy of, in fact, all the glory. His character is so weighty. His name is so exalted. And so he is worthy of all honor and glory. And for how long? from our first breath to our last. In fact, as Paul says, forever and ever into eternity. Amen. Friends, I wonder if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to have confidence as you face very difficult situations. You know yourself not to have this abiding comfort. Friends, you realize that you are designed as a human being to be in relation to your maker, right? To think of, let's say, a child and a parent. A child has such confidence holding the father, the mother's hand as they walk through life in a crowd, in a difficulty, in a difficult situation, in bruising themselves, in cutting themselves, in their pain. Friends, you realize that that's us. We're designed to live in relation to our maker, always holding his hand, always having our hearts tethered to his, Jesus Christ, as we are made in his image. No wonder there is confidence in the Father in heaven. No wonder there is comfort knowing that Jesus Christ comes to earth and identifies with sinners and then saves them, saves his people. Friends, if you don't know this confidence and comfort, let me encourage you, turn from your sins. Do not rely on yourself. You'll see how far you can get or just how far you won't get in relying upon yourselves or any other human. But instead, the Lord stands, according to the word of God, with his arms open, ready to forgive and receive, to give you confidence, to live for him, who is the only one worthy of living for, and to give you comfort. And I'm guessing that as you examine your own sins and wrongdoings, you recognize that there is great discomfort, that there are things you haven't settled. And you realize those are the things that only Christ, the Lord, can settle as he forgives sins and brings you into his family as he declares you the and gives you the righteousness you need. 
He declares you righteous so that you would stand in his presence, not to fear him as a king, but to know him as a father. Repent of your sins and believe, and friends, you will be saved. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the kind father and that you, Lord Jesus, are our strong savior. And in you, there is together the perfect sympathies that you might identify with sinners and all of your divine perfections and power. How awesome is it, Lord, that you wield these things, your sympathies and your perfections towards the protection of your people. God, we pray that you would make us as First Baptist Church, you would make our hearts to be hearts like Christ. That you would give us hearts like Christ. We pray, God, that Paul and Timothy would be our example, that we would faithfully labor to see Christ's name go to the ends of the earth. And we pray, too, that their brotherly love for one another would truly, truly mark our own church. Challenge us, we pray. Help us examine ourselves to see where we need to grow in love. We pray, God, that we wouldn't simply try to love as if we do these things in our own human strength, but we pray, God, that we would pray that the Spirit would help us do these things. We know, Lord, that the way in which we love one another is part of your evangelism plan to the ends of the earth because your word says in John 13 that by Christian love, as Christians go about loving one another, by that, by this, the world will know that we are your disciples. God, we ask that you would help First Baptist Church be cemented together in Christian love and that most importantly and especially and foundationally, we would be cemented to the head that is the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Make everything we do go to the praise of your glory forever and ever. And help us be faithful. Help us desire to please you, the one who enlisted us. And we pray, God, that we would take such great joy in doing this, knowing you are God, the Lord. Knowing you are gracious and merciful in saving us. And knowing your faithfulness that you fulfill all that you promise. In your great name we pray these things. Amen.